Hello and welcome once again to episode 43 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So before we get into our main topic, it's time for our indie app spotlight. So if you don't know, uh, we recently put out another call for a bunch of indie apps. So if you are an author of indie apps, uh, let us know uh, via DM on Twitter. Uh, that way we can showcase your app as well. So uh, this is entirely uh, set up by people submitting in their uh, own apps and uh, us sharing that to the to our tiny audience, uh, which is growing every day. So that's always good. Um, and hopefully we can help out some indie developers in the process. Uh, that's always the dream, right? So uh, today we are checking out Time Wave by Muhammad Sahil uh, Arakandi. Uh, Araya Kandi, sorry, uh, an iOS app that reinvents the basic idea of a timer. So TimeWave allows you to set up a sequence of timers that run one after another, uh, so that way you can help complete sequential tasks. Uh, this can be used for anything from workouts to multi-stage cooking recipes uh, to work break cycles and much more. So the UI is tastefully tweaked to perform this function very well uh, and allows you to easily customize your workflows. Uh, and the best part is TimeWave costs just $1.99 on the iOS App Store. So please be sure to support Muhammad by downloading it today. Uh, and once again, if you are an indie developer, we want to hear from you. So please reach out to us at Twitter uh, on Twitter at CodeCompletion uh, via DM, and we can spotlight your app in the future as well. I just uh, have to say real quick, uh -huh. that's such a good name for that app. That makes so much sense. That app naming is so hard, and I think he nailed it on that one. Yeah, I, I often just like pick a random word and hopefully they'll, they'll do for my marketing endeavors for the app forever. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, but yeah, this this is a super cool app and it really rethinks like what a timer should be rather than being really structured like to to purpose like one type of workflow, like the Pomodoro technique or something like that. Mm -hmm. This just kind of covers it all. So it's a very yeah. general purpose app. So. Uh, like I plan on just using it for cooking whenever they say, oh, boil for this and then wait this. Uh, that's exactly. like a perfect, you don't even, you configure it once and then it's always good to go. Uh, and it yeah. remembers. So I'm going to try uh, it out too. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely go check out, uh, indie apps. Very cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> so onto our main topic, uh, today I wanted to talk about, uh, development teams because of stuff in the news, stuff that always comes around and people joining new teams and, knowing what to expect. Uh, so I, specifically, I wanted to kind of focus on uh, like what kind of team works best for making uh, apps, uh, whether they're iOS or Mac. I think it all kind of is basically the same. Um, like the, the, the rumor that I have forever heard on the grapevine is like every app at Apple has like one to three people working on it. Um, and that is it. Like you think, oh, it's like a team of 100 people working on something. No, generally it isn't. Uh, like UIKit only has like a handful of people that are making all of UIKit. Um, and uh, I think that's that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily know or they might have a very skewed opinion based on uh, what it comes up in the news as far as like these big companies having hundreds and hundreds of developers. Uh, so uh, that's why I wanted to kind of talk about this. Uh, so... Um, I would say there are probably four kinds of uh, app 
development teams. There's like the one person solo team, which is just most indie developers, uh, basically. Or uh, depending on what kind of company you're working for, you might be the only developer making that iOS app. Um, and you're allowed to relatively free reign as a result. Then there's like the two to three people teams. Uh, and this is when uh, I think things like code review are super useful uh, because you can go ahead and uh, actually have an impact at every stage of the development, no matter who you are on that team. Then you have slightly bigger teams of five to 10. Uh, and then it really explodes from there and you have hundreds. Um, so I think I would go ahead and say on a limb that most apps are basically the same size. Uh, what do you think, Spencer? Well, yeah, no, that's that's interesting that you brought it up because I was kind of thinking maybe the team depends on the size of the app, but mm -hmm. now I'm kind of rethinking that a little bit. I've also heard that teams at Apple are very small and, you know, of course they've got hundreds of probably dozens at the very least of projects going on, but they're all mm -hmm. segmented out. No one really knows what else, everyone else is doing. Like no one at Apple really knew that Swift UI was even a thing until it was announced publicly. Um I don't know. Um, I think, I mean, from my perspective, I've only been around teams of five to 10 people or less, whether it's my current job, there's, um, I think seven of us, uh, seven developers, um, not including uh, anyone who does like QA or anything, but just actual programming. There's seven of us. Um, of course I've, I've got my own personal stuff. So that's like the one person team. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've seen, um, I, I suppose the two to three person teams of students working on projects, you know, collaboratively, but, um, I've not really been in a real working environment with a smaller team than that. Um, so I don't know. I think like, like you said, I think a huge thing with that is like how the dynamic plays out. You know, if it's one person, if it's me, I'm a lot more lax about how I review my code and how I branch with things. I will push to develop on occasion because it's like, I'm, I know I'm the only person working on it and it doesn't really matter. I know Dimitri's shaking his head. Disappointment. But I would never do that at work, right? I would always follow branching and, and, you know, go through the pull request process and, and peer review. Uh, so I, I guess I don't know. I, I don't have a great answer. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so like personally as well, like I have worked professionally on like this, the one person solo, you were in charge of all of iOS and Mac development at this company. Um, but also I have also done the two to three person uh, kind of like mini projects where yes, the development team is larger, but there's only ever two to three people working on a single app or projects at once. Maybe the backend has another two to three people, maybe the uh, the website has another two to three people. So um, I think that is a very good kind of middle ground. And oftentimes the bigger the app, uh, the smaller it will be sectioned off into like individual things uh, that then two to three people will end up working on. So I don't want to poke into what Spencer does like privately uh, at work, but I would imagine that since it is a fairly large app, it is kind of sequestered into individual uh, projects or tasks and then there's only a handful of people working on those individual pieces at once um, and you can say the same like for apple apple has thousands of engineers but they're all working on individual components even if it's one operating system 
that operating system is made up of a bunch of small pieces, a calendar app, a mail app, a user interface uh, framework, um, nitty gritty algorithm framework, uh, super speedy accelerate framework. So all of those individual pieces are smaller components um, and you can go ahead and have smaller teams uh, concentrate on just those. So yeah, at work it is, um, be, well, again, because of the size of our app, and I don't know if it's necessarily bigger or smaller than a lot of, you know, large, like professional level apps, but um, our app is sectioned out into basically different frameworks within NXC workspace. So um, a lot of things uh, I don't touch, um, you know, most of the time I'm in like, our UI related thing where we're kind of building out base views and base view controllers um, or communicating with some um, external source like Dropbox or Google Drive or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely see that perspective of I'm definitely not in in the entire app. I'm most, mostly kind of sectioned out into one or two overarching pieces of the app. And that's just because of the amount of knowledge that I don't have uh, with the app and experience, I'm not really touching a lot of the other parts of uh, the project itself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you bring up an, an interesting point too, because you are comfortable with like those sections of the app because you have constructed uh, a sort of mental map or a mental model of how all that code fits together. And I think that's super important and something we take for granted when we start a project on our own is as we, the moment we click on create new project in Xcode, we are slowly building up a, a index of that entire project within our heads. Like we know where those files are. It can be a complete mess, unorganized. We still know where everything is because we're the ones who built it. Um, and even if you take time off of that project, the moment you get back into it, your brain remembers. Um, and that is something that helps you kind of manage a large code base because you have that mental map and you know where like things are and how to get to them. Uh, and you're effectively able to uh, go and make changes to that. So if there's a bug, you know immediately, oh, that's related to this uh, because that's like the kind of code that would be impacted by such a uh, bug and you don't have to go hunting for it. You, like you, there's no, there's an, uh, like very little ambiguity as to where it could be um, in that uh, scenario. So uh, this is something that uh, I think a lot of people take for granted when you go and join a team is you don't necessarily have that mental map uh, that's just kind of there and ready for you to just jump in uh, and you have to build it little by little. Um, so uh, I think that's a that's a big piece uh, that we don't usually think about. I absolutely agree. That was one thing that I was very scared about, uh, kind of transitioning from teaching to being a full-time developer on, working on an app, was the overall, how do I have this mental model of the entire app? Um, because it's, it's massive. Uh, it's way bigger than anything that I've ever worked with, at least. Uh, so when I... Before I even started, and uh, as I started my first few months there, uh, I was honestly overwhelmed. And whenever I'd hear my boss or my coworkers talk about, "Oh yeah, it's in this," the, you know, this part of the app, this class, or whatever, I was just kind of dumbfounded because I was like, "I know that I can do that, but it's an app that I've written from you know start to finish, uh, my own app. It's not this app that you know a bunch of people are working on." Mm -hmm. um, and slowly, 
I, you know, you, you do pick that up and you do w within the things that I have worked in a lot. Um, I am fairly able to remember what, it, you know, what methods or what properties are in a certain class if they're used a bunch uh, within kind of that realm. So um, if you are worried about something like that in your first job or a new job, um, whatever it is, it definitely comes with time. Like Dimitri said, it's not um, something that at least for me, I didn't pick it up very, very quickly. It took me a few months to get used to things. And even things like the overall architecture, like having things segmented out into uh, different uh, frameworks and how to have the correct... Um, oh, now I'm forgetting the terminology. Um, access control levels, right? Like public versus open and all of that stuff um, just wasn't something I really had to think about. Um, because I was always working in my own small apps. So mm -hmm. it definitely does come. Um, so don't worry, I guess. <laughs> don't worry, be happy. Um, yeah. So that, that's that's an excellent point that you make. So as a project grows, you do want to kind of split it up into smaller bits so that way you can have like a complete understanding of that one piece at least. Um, and the more you refactor things into their individual components, the easier that is. Um, and that's when you have to start worrying about public and internal and private because you are effectively writing a framework at that point for someone else to use. And that's when it's tremendously useful to have great documentation that explains like the thought processes uh, and things like that for why you started building it a certain way. Um, and that's something that like you can pessimistically see as uh, training your future uh, replacement um, because if you do a great job at that, it's super easy to replace you. Uh, but at the same time, it's also very useful, uh, for yourself when you are coming back to it or just learning about the code in general, like to go ahead and document as you go, um, that can help you know, understand what's going on. And especially if you're replacing old code that is not documented, it's a good opportunity to add documentation at that point. Um, so that way, uh, one, it helps everyone else on the team understand if you are understanding the older code as well as you think you are, um, because all your assumptions are going to be laid bare uh, right then and there. Uh, but two, it also helps you build that mental map because you're replacing code you had no idea about with code that you wrote, um, and that that tends to help over time. Yeah, a perfect example of that was um, I started working on a fairly large um, kind of replacement for um, one part of our app uh, to kind of prep for features that are coming in iOS 15, uh, or rather iPadOS 15 kind of specifically. Um, and that was, I think I was working on it maybe a week or so before I had my eye surgery. Um, and there were parts that I had written a little bit of documentation for, and there were parts that I hadn't. Um, and when I came back uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, there were definitely things that I had kind of forgotten why I had written them that way. And it was only like two weeks of, of being off. It wasn't that much time. So mm -hmm. writing documentation, even for yourself, is is helpful. Um, and we've even, um, well, we have like sort of more in, in verbose documentation in, in Notion. And, you know, we can we can talk about the good the pros and cons about notion all day but <laughs> uh, having somewhere outside of the project as well of uh, more of like a not an inline uh, piece of documentation but kind of a very it was i mean 
before I submitted the pull request, I wrote some documentation on like how to use this and how to, you know, if you're coming out, if you're not me, um, how would you use this because you're, you're not familiar with it. And it was, you know, quite a few paragraphs trying to get it all my mental map out for someone else. And I think doing that is hard. It's taking away from the code, but I also personally found it a little bit, um, uh, cathartic to do because it helped me just like we've talked about kind of rubber duck out how my thought process of this whole architecture was. And it turned out there were a couple of things that I had to go back and, and fix before I submit my submitted my pull request. Cause I had just missed them and I hadn't thought about them until I wrote my documentation out. So that was kind of a cool experience to, um, lend the documentation writing process lended itself to me writing better and clearer code. Yeah, and I, I think that's an integral part as to why I always tell people uh, do go ahead and write documentation, do write good, clear commit messages, uh, do go ahead and do all this busy work, review your teammates' PRs, uh, because all of that helps you conceptualize other parts of the code that you're not necessarily working on. It's important for almost every member to be comfortable with the entire app. Otherwise one person disappears and you don't know what to do, how, like how to fix a certain part anymore. It's you're completely lost and you have to restart. Um, and that's a wasted effort. Um, so, uh, in the same way that like writing documentation might be, uh, very pessimistically seen as like preparing for your eventual replacement, uh, do go ahead and read your, your coworkers documentation. So that way, if they, like uh worst case scenario get hit by a bus or something you can still go ahead and pull the project forward because you are comfortable with the code uh that they went and wrote um so if they put the effort into it especially like that's that's even more important like the people who just make a pr and they no description uh and put very little effort into it that's one thing but if someone does write a pr and they add a bunch of documentation like do them a favor and at the very least read it because they put that effort into it, um, and they are basically making sure, hoping that you can validate uh, the effort that they did put in. Like maybe they missed something, uh, but that's only going to be clear if you actually go and read it yourself as well. Yeah, kind of going back to this this concept that we're talking about and tying it in with team sizes. Um, you know, writing documentation for one person if it's just you on your team. Probably not absolutely essential. I'd say it's still very, very helpful. Um, but there have been times where uh, I've had to like bug my my coworkers for understanding on some part of the app that I'm not familiar with, and I know they're more than happy to kind of give me that information and, and help me out. But I also know I'm wasting both my time and their time for sure. Where if there was documentation in place, uh, we probably could have solved the issue. Um, if I could learn about whatever it was I needed, um, kind of without anyone else's help, without bothering them. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes you still need to talk to them and everything, but I'd say documentation can maybe solve a little bit of the, um, you know, slacking, slacking your coworker, waiting for them to respond, waiting to get on a Zoom call and kind of that whole cycle that can happen just to get an answer to a question that may be super simple, but because mm -hmm. they are really the only source of information, that's what you have to deal with. 
and they would have to at that point like reload that information into their head like oh what is what on earth is spencer on about okay they need to go and dig in tax code they're no longer they've shelved away what they were working on at this point uh and and unstaged uh this old uh crusty code that they wrote in their youth uh, and uh, trying to remember it just so that way they can answer this one question that Spencer was asking. And in the process, they uh, completely got derailed and found some a few bugs in it that they think were bugs and rewrote it and broke something else. Like Spencer caused chaos in this one occasion. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Story uh, of my life. But like you can see this as as like a potential waste of time. Like oh, spending the time to do documentation is going to take a lot more time than just having someone come and ask you. Like that is going to be relatively over quickly. Um, whereas writing documentation does take some time. But at this at a certain point, how many times can someone ask you about the same thing before having written documentation would have been faster from the beginning? Um, and generally over time, it, it ends up being that if you have a reference that kind of states what the code was thinking um, or a general outline of a, a user flow or things like that, um, that's going to help not only uh, the next employee that comes in, but your other coworkers that you've been with since the beginning, yourself. It, it, it really does um, win in the long term, uh, like I would say 10 times out of 10. Like there's never an occasion where documentation was ever useless um towards the end and yes sometimes you don't have the time to necessarily put the effort into documentation right away uh but as long as it's still fresh in your mind it's going to be easiest um so if you really do push it out too long then it's going to be near impossible so um definitely try to fold that into your regular uh workflow um because at that point no one can kind of squeeze it out from you anymore uh, if you do do that regularly and you do it every single time, uh, something for instance, we are currently rewriting. Um, we are currently rewriting some portion of an app uh, for one of the projects I'm working on, and I'm insisting uh, that everyone on the team add documentation in the process. Like we're moving stuff from the app into a shared library so we can reuse it. Um, so in that process, nothing is not getting documented. I am enforcing that at the very least. Like we can't test all this; it's all UI stuff. Uh, and it's hard to test, but at the very least, I do want it all documented. And uh, sometimes you need occasions like that because, uh, like, we had one one line of code that we were copying over that's um, uh, formatting a number without commas. So, like, if you have ten thousand, you have one zero comma zero zero zero. Um, and this this specific one is to format it with no commas. Uh, so it's like no comma string kind of thing. And I just asked, what's the difference between this and just casting it as a string? Uh, because that would essentially give us the same result. Uh, and it's in this process that we we're like documenting all this, that that becomes super obvious, like that that's potentially code that's not doing something really efficiently or uh, smartly at all. Like it was building up a number formatter and not even caching it uh, and things like that. So uh, it's it's useful to go ahead and do this process if you can. Uh, but if you can't to at the very least for all new code that you add, uh, to go ahead and document it for others. Um, and again, if you put the effort into documenting it, other people are going to thank you for it, even silently. Uh, the fact that it exists is always going to be welcome. Yeah, I mean, think about how often, or, or I, guess, <laughs> I guess I'm speaking from experience here. I'm not, I'm not going to project on everyone here. But 
I just think about how often I either use the Apple's documentation or Google something. I mean, that those are, you could think of Stack Overflow as kind of a form of documentation, a global sense of documentation. Um, but I just think about how often I use that and then kind of jumping into our, you know, app specific code that has no documentation is it kind of like being out in the wild west where there is no real information you know kind of <laughs> right i mean the the code that you're writing inside of whatever your function like you can start googling that kind of stuff but overall there's no um overarching sense of direction unless you have good documentation you can write good function um names and all that stuff but that can only get you so far especially if it's some complex thing that's going on there needs to be a little bit more in order for you to really understand without having to go through every line of code and try to assimilate all that knowledge um, yourself, I guess. Mm -hmm. So pivoting a little, there's another uh, tool that everyone uses at their disposal uh, when it comes to like organizing uh, team members and how, how they're contributing to the project. Um, and that comes down to project architecture. So for instance, if you've ever written a UIKit app, uh, one type of architecture that you're immediately going to be familiar with uh, is MVC, Model View Controller. Uh, and that's because that's how Apple has organized its own framework. So if you also organize your app using MVC, uh, the MVC paradigm, then you are going to have the easiest time using Apple's frameworks. That doesn't mean you can't use other architectures, um, but it's always worth uh, trying to understand why a given architecture exists. So uh, let me let me kind of give you uh, some examples here. So for instance, if you are a solo developer, the architecture you use does not matter. You have an entire mental map of your project. You know where everything is. And one architecture is not going to save you time over another architecture ever. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, like, you can go ahead and know exactly what you need to pull out, what you need to change at any given moment. Um, your app is always flexible because you know all pieces of it. I think that's um, fair. Now, when you are on a project with hundreds of people, that's a very different, uh, that's a very different thing. All of a sudden, instead of having one project to be separated into loose sections, like, oh, this is going to be the backend engine, this is going to be the UI components for the main, like the UI building blocks. And then this part is going to be the individual people, uh, the individual UIs that the user sees. Um, so instead of splitting it that way, what you end up with is every little thing is split out. Oh, this is the button component. This is a screen component. This is an image component. Um, and you end up re-engineering the frameworks that Apple essentially gives you. Um, and this is uh, something that uh, you may have heard of uh, with the clean architecture or the Viper architecture, uh, where every little thing has to be independent from everything else. And it's very important that it is. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to work with hundreds of other people. You need to be able to essentially work in a complete silo. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be breaking stuff and causing merge conflicts with everyone else because not everyone is going to have a complete mental map of the project because it would be impossible to keep track of hundreds of changes every single day. Um, everything has to be automated. Everything has to um, be sequestered out. And I would go ahead and say that this is super inefficient. Like you wouldn't want to use these architectures 
building your own app because all of a sudden your one table view cell is going to have five individual components that all need to be sequestered individually. And there's no thought going into why you're doing this. You're just kind of going with the flow of uh, the architecture du jour uh, kind of thing, which is not going to be especially useful to anyone. Um, so it is especially useful to talk about architectures when it comes down to like team size, because that's when they become uh, the most effective. I would, I would go ahead and say like, you couldn't use MVC with a team of a hundred. Uh, you'd have three people working effectively in 97 that would be completely uh, lost or stepping on each other constantly. Um, and it's, it's not an effective architecture for something like that. Um, at the same time, like that same app could probably still be built by two or three people using uh, MVC or something simpler or something slightly more complex. Um, and it's it's worth really thinking and evaluating why you want to use one uh, system over the other um, when you are managing that team uh, and to consider like how big your team actually needs to be. If you're just bringing on more people because the the ability to do so is there, that's not necessarily going to make things faster or more effective. Uh, you really want to keep things, I would say personally, you really want to keep individual projects as small as possible, like have only a handful of people working on it. And that's especially important because the people that are going to be using your app, they're going to be using that whole app. They need to be comfortable with it. Um, and not be themselves lost. Like you don't want something that's so complex that's built in 17 different ways uh, from confusing the user. Like someone who uses Twitter, they're going to use all of Twitter. You can't have Twitter be more complex than one person can conceptualize. Uh, so if you have thousands of people building out the Twitter UIs and stuff like that, that's not helping your users because then you're going to have thousands of opinions entering in and kind of forming that. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. It feels like I was rambling a little bit. No, totally. And it kind of got me thinking, like, I don't think there's quite a linear um, scaling, I guess, between mm -hmm. the amount of developers you have and how fast you can write the app. I think there's probably a sweet spot for every app. But um, I, I agree that, like, for the size of our app, we use MVC pretty much, and it's it works great, and we don't step on anyone's toes. There's enough uh, for us all to work on where we don't you know, we're not working the same uh, UI components or whatever it, it is. But I feel like if you were to get to that point where you do, you have broken it out into an architecture like Cleaner Viper, where you you have hundreds of people, that seems like there's a lot of overhead just on the development front, not to mention communicating with designers and, and kind of external uh, decision makers in whatever the app is going to look like and, and behave. Uh, that it doesn't maybe scale linear, linearly. Like if you have 100 developers and then you go to 200, I don't necessarily think that means you will double the speed at which you can develop an app. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of uh, uh, postulation. Is that the right yeah. word? No, yeah. Um, and I think the opportunity to kind of experience these different um, these different architectures less than joining teams that already actively use it, which is probably the best way to learn it quick and hate it quickly, <laughs> just as quickly, <laughs> um, is to actually try it out yourself. So on a next time you start like a personal project, pick an architecture that you're not necessarily uh, familiar with um, and learn about it. And that's a great opportunity to learn what parts of it work really well, what parts of it don't. Try to think about why they made certain decisions rather than just blindly going with it. 
Um, and after you do this a few times, you're going to be very good at knowing, okay, uh, it was very useful to be able to separate out these components into individual reusable components. Uh, but uh, this other part over here where I did all that work, like I'm never going to reuse uh, that same thing again. Uh, like something I see in SwiftUI all the time is people uh, trying to always have a view model for every view uh, when it doesn't necessarily make sense if two views are not using the same view model. If you only ever have one view using that view model, you've just put a bunch of your code into a different file that can no longer access your environments, uh, your uh, state, your bindings. Like you have to now shuttle, add, have extra code just to shuttle that information around. Yeah. Uh, and that makes things way more complicated. That could have just been an extension on the same view. Like the compiler does not care about your opinion of like whether this should be one, two, five, seventeen files uh, with seventeen different types associated uh, in that process. Like the compiler is probably just going to take longer to compile it because it's getting confused. Uh, but if that's just one file, like guess what? Computers have infinite memory in terms of how many characters you can put on screen. They don't care about how many lines of code you have in one file anymore. Uh, if you want, you can have the same window with the same file or two windows with the same file, and you can see them side by side. Uh, so the computer is no longer limited by any sort of uh, restriction uh, there anymore. So don't do think about why you want to like structure something in one way or another, because there are always going to be pros and cons, especially when you're fighting the system that it was originally built uh, with those assumptions in place. Um, so... Uh, Use use your opportunities when you are working solo to kind of learn what works best uh, and what doesn't because your your influence on a team setting is very limited uh, in terms of like changing uh, the architecture or uh, the decisions that have been already set in place. Um, whereas when you're working solo, you you are the decision maker. You can basically move it in any direction you want. Uh, so uh, use those learnings to then apply that in in a team setting or for new code that you write like you don't have to adhere to one particular architecture yes it makes it easier to uh, hire new people if they say oh we need a, a viper developer uh and that's that then you've got yourself a viper developer but you don't have yourself a developer who can think on their own they can only apply viper um and that is that is something that you might not want on your team. Like you want people who can think and engineer new ideas uh, rather than be very stuck and rigid. Um, so I, I would say it goes both ways uh, when you have those kinds of requirements. Um, so yes, it, it might help you get a job more easily, uh, but at the same time, you're less valuable to the team that you're joining because you're just as replaceable um, as anyone else, uh, especially when it is a super... Uh, isolated environment where the, you don't have any stakes in what you're actively building. You're just putting together pieces. Uh, and yeah. I'm just rambling yeah. at this point. <laughs> no, no, that's great. I It kind of got me thinking like, I think we can sort of pick and, and choose the, the pieces that we want to use of maybe not different architectures. Well, sure. But different kind of ways of doing things. Like for example... Um, I was working on a Swift UI component that's pretty like hyper specific. Like I, it wouldn't really make sense to be reused or anything. And so it's basically all uh, one struct. I think it might be two actually. Um, 
but it's not really meant to be a reusable thing. It's kind of like this one very specific number pad you can do math on and that's pretty much its whole thing. Whereas I had uh, another teammate basically at the same time uh, making some more generalized UI components out of, uh, from Swift UI, like pop-up menus and stuff. And like that does make sense to be a little bit more reusable because it's something that can be used in many, many different situations. And so we're kind of applying, I, I don't know if this is quite what you were getting at, but we're kind of applying different ways of using, for example, in this example, Swift UI um, to our particular use case, I guess. Yeah, you don't have to go ahead and say that all Swift UI code has to follow this uh, regimented structure. Uh, it really should be considered on a case-by-case basis, which is uh, better to use. And uh, if if people are super rigid on, oh no, it has to be this way, then use documentation as your tool to explain why this particular code should not be done this way. Um, and the, like ultimately, we are all hopefully on the team speaking one language uh, and like a human language. I'm not talking about a programming language. So use that fact so that we can express complex ideas uh, in very loose general terms. Like it doesn't have to be specific when we're expressing complex ideas. Our brains do the rest of the work. Uh, filling in the details. So use that fact that you can do that um, in a way that the code can't necessarily do the same uh, to really help uh, keep things keep things unified and uh, expressible and something that everyone else can use and understand. Another case for documentation. So Documentation-driven de- development all the way. That's right. <laughs> And don't get me started on people who use tabs instead of spaces. Like you're oh, not saving yeah. any bits uh, on your hard drive anymore. Uh, <laughs> like just just use spaces. I'm just kidding. It's not an important hill to die on at all. <laughs> so this week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by NotFa. Tired of eating the same old meals time and time again? Consider Vietnamese food. You might already know of pho, but there are tons of other flavors specific to Vietnamese cuisine that are sadly not well known around the world. This includes everything from sandwiches like banh mi, bright's plates like kum tham, and even the deliciously savory crepes known as banh seo. And that's where the app Not Pho comes in. It's a free-to-try app dedicated to teaching you more about the wonders behind Vietnamese cuisine, brought to life by colorful and interactive illustrations and animations. Learn how to make many classic Vietnamese flavors at home, but even if you don't cook, you'll know how to order like a pro the next time you visit your local Vietnamese restaurant. New since version 1.1 is the Chef Club, regularly bringing you even more recipes like avocado and mango smoothies, fried rice, chicken curry, and my personal favorite, chicken beef, for the low cost of $2 a month, with more recipes added regularly. This month, the Chef Club saw the addition of shrimp and grilled pork spring rolls, which make for a perfectly refreshing snack in the late summer heat. Thanks again to NotFa for sponsoring our show. Search for NotFa, that's N-O-T space P-H-O, on the app store today to give it a try, completely for free. Now that we've gone through our topics, it's time for Complete the Code, where we quiz our listeners on your knowledge of Swift, Apple, and all things development. Spencer? Yeah, so uh, last week we had an accessibility-related question uh, for our accessibility episode. Uh, It was, given the Swift UI button below, how could you make it accessible? Um, And it was pretty open-ended, and we had a few responses, which was awesome to see. So Craig Swanson wrote, and I'm going to kind of summarize here. uh, He said, could you set the title to something more descriptive? Um, it seems fairly Swift UI-ish, so I did have to consult the World the Wide Web for the correct syntax, but a possible answer might be um, a button with a title called Paper Airplane, 
um, the action is submit answer, and then a label is the image of the airplane itself, uh, which is the right idea. Um, it, it unfortunately is syntactically incorrect. Uh, Patrick, the dev, um, at Patrick the dev had a slightly uh, different suggestion to go with an accessibility label or using a SwiftUI label view directly. Yeah, inside of the button, he would add a label view with the text start and then, you know, for a, like a play button, for example, and then uh, set the label to an icon only style, but it would still have that label uh, for accessibility reasons. Finally, PKCL Soft wrote in hoping the solution in SwiftUI would be simple enough to tempt them away from doing the same thing in SpriteKit. Um, he says, don't know the answer. However, as I work on accessibility in a SpriteKit environment for iOS, tvOS, macOS, I'm wondering if the answer will make my current efforts seem like I'm working too hard, um, to which we responded that accessibility in SpriteKit can't be too fun to deal with. Um, and he said it offers challenges, but it's easier than it used to be. Uh, building something that works across all three OSs in a consistent manner is not simple. The APIs have diverged so much, which I, I definitely believe that. Uh, this week, we have a classic networking question for you. This one's a good one. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, please check the podcast art or the show notes to follow along. So uh, why could the data task handler not get a response back from the server given this piece of code? So can you complete the code? Uh, this is a one that I've seen dozens of times in my own code and others. Uh, it's... <laughs> It's a super classic one. So tweet your answers to us with hashtag complete the code, all one word. Uh, the first to get it right will get a shout out on next week's show. So as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes get released. And feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic uh, you'd like for us to get into. Uh, most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the app process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis, that's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter, and for joining me this week. And my name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buñol, that's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. So yeah, Spencer, uh, tell me all about your HomeKit uh, camera setup. Yeah, I'm so intrigued. I just I, I just got these today, so they're you know not I haven't played around with them too much, but I was looking for really the thing I was looking for were um, door sensors, like when you can detect when doors open and and everything. Um, I don't know. I not that I live in like a bad neighborhood or anything, but I have like weird like ever since I've lived on my own, I have like a weird. I don't know. I, paranoia secure yeah like <laughs> paranoia of security and everything so um i got these they're they're really small and i haven't um my door and my door frame are not level and so i need to 3d print a little um riser for one of them but it's cool it's just a little magnet so when it opens it'll you know um give my phone a notification that the door was open and then when it closes too um and are so they, it's are they bluetooth or wi-fi connected they use like the the zigbee oh, z-wave protocol so to make it compatible with HomeKit, what you have to do is get like a hub mm -hmm. i was like ah, i don't want to buy a hub and so what happened was 
with this particular um, brand, Akara, uh, they have a camera that also acts as a hub. And it was, I think, $5 more than the just hub itself. So I was like, I'll get the camera, even though I don't really have a use for one. It's an indoor camera. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does connect to HomeKit, and it uses like the the HomeKit secure video, does recording, um, motion detection, and all that. So it's actually really cool. It's just in my living room, um, which it, it's a pretty wide field of view. Let's see. I think it's a hundred and yeah, hundred and forty degrees. So it can do motion detection for both my front door um, and my garage door, which is pretty cool. Um, even though I'm going to have door sensors on them. So it was kind of a bonus, I guess, but it can record, uh, stream, you know, outside of my network and everything. So um, it was pretty cool. The only other really HomeKit things I have are um, some light switches. Like I can just turn on my office lights uh, whenever I want. And I've got a cool app called Scene Cuts, I think it's called. So I can just have keyboard commands on my Mac do any um home kit scene so that's kind of cool that's um but yeah it's it's cool i'm excited to put them on and really try them um i mean since i live alone it's not like anyone's going to be using them but i have learned that i didn't even know that this functionality existed when i when i got them but just as i've been playing around with them this afternoon you can do things like have it alert you only when you are not in mm-hmm. at home like when it detects you're outside of the geofence and everything so that's cool so it's not notifying me all the time if i'm just going in and out of my garage or whatever but if you're the one doing one. it <laughs> right yeah so yeah uh we have uh I, f- I forget it's like the yale by august i don't know the companies have bought each other 17 times um but <laughs> we have those door locks and they work they work pretty well um, oh, and yeah. they also notify us anytime it gets like unlocked, relocked, door open, door closed. Um, so that's always a barrage of of notifications, which are funnily enough not as loud as the door opening and closing. So it's, <laughs> it's like right. easy enough to know when the door opens and closes. Like, uh, but when you're not home, that that is a useful thing uh, to be notified of. Um, I mostly enjoy it because since they're the door lock itself is Bluetooth. Um, it will connect over Bluetooth to a little Wi-Fi thing that then connects uh, to the rest of HomeKit. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it has a feature where it can notify you if the Wi-Fi goes out um, or if it loses its connection and then when it regains its connection. Um, and I especially enjoy that as someone with flaky internet uh, to be notified when the internet is not working or if it's just me um, that can't access it because of like iCloud private relay or whatever. Uh, which mm-hmm. is on the beta sometimes it just stops working and you don't have any internet so I, at that point i don't know is it just me or uh but then when i get a notification <laughs> moments later it's like the the back door has lost its wi-fi connection i'm like yep it's not just me <laughs> that's cool they're they're coming out with some pretty cool home kit things and i'm happy that a lot of like thir- not uh, everyone's a third party but like a lot of cheaper companies are coming out with stuff because Logitech makes really nice HomeKit stuff, but it's also really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this cool company that I, I don't know if it was a Kickstarter or not, but uh, it's called the Level Lock. I think the company is also called Level, but 
they have one particular smart lock. It's, it's that, like the entire fixture of the lock, right? Yeah, it's just the internal. So it, you can't even tell that it's like a smart lock. And you, you know, if you have, I guess, nice hardware, I don't, but you did, you could keep the hardware on the outside and just have it internal. The batteries like in the deadbolt and everything. That's so cool. Um, I want to get one of those someday. I think it's not too bad. I think it's $200 or something like that for that. I wonder if AA provides a good structure integri- structural integrity for the default itself. Yeah, that that is like the one question mark. I mean, I, I think regardless, you, people could probably kick down a door if they really wanted to with yeah. a normal deadbolt. I, I found it. So, uh, fun story. Uh, in the U.S., doors open inwards, right, um, mm-hmm. when you're like entering a house. And that's because you have to put the hinges on the like direction of the door opening uh, right. So if you want the door, if you want the hinges to be on the inside, you need to have the door open inwards. Uh, in Japan, you actually have the doors open outwards because the door leads into this very small space where you can take off your shoes, and there's no space for a door to open in there. It's like full shoes, um, so they open outwards. Um, and I always found that curious because that means all the hinges are on the outside of the house, and you yeah. can just pop the pins and open the door the wrong way. Um, but since it's a country of relatively like non-existent crime, that's not a problem. Um, but yeah, so like hearpening back to the fact that we have deadbolts and we expect that to hold our door, um, in a secure manner, it's like, no, there's infinite ways of like breaking and entering without being too like, uh, worried about the door itself. Like, I hate to tell you walls are thin and they're very easy to yeah (laughs) like if you know anything about construction like the the whole house that is not the door or the window that's probably easier to break into if you have a saw um yeah like joking aside drywall yeah um so yeah with lots of space in between and foam so if you hit it too hard you don't actually hurt yourself i'm just kidding you will hurt yourself don't don't go breaking into (laughs) houses this way dimitri's Uh, bad bad (laughs) burglary tips well, it's like the U.S. banking system, too. It's like two numbers that don't even have checksums, and you have access to, unlimited access to someone's account. Uh, yay, yay federal insurance to keep that under wraps. <laughs> uh, the whole system is broken. Don't think with a security mind in terms of, like, our everyday living. Uh, but, yeah. So <laughs> That's awesome. Back to HomeKit. We also have the light switches. And as you said, they're they're expensive, but uh, when they work, they're, they work nicely. When they want to stop working, then they stop working. And Siri's all like, I didn't hear back from your kitchen lights. And you're like, I'm not in the kitchen anymore. I don't want to get up and turn those <laughs> off like someone from the 2010s. Um, yeah. And it's amazing how quickly you get used to. Just it's true. Everything it's... being voice activated. We joked about in the 90s about the clapper and the clap on, clap right. off. Um, and that was probably a stupid one. But the the fact that like everything can be connected to the dingus in the box is super convenient. Um, and you only realize that once you have everything connected and it's like something is not, and you're like, where, where's the wall switch? I don't want to look for that. Yeah. Like I have a, a fan in my bedroom and it's so nice. Like if it's too hot, just tap the button and the fan turns on. I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. Or um, I've just got a smart, uh, like outlet plug connected to my 3d printer so i don't have to walk in there to turn it on because it's it's in a separate room it's loud i don't want to go in there and turn it on and wait for the the chime to finish playing and everything it just turns on and i can start printing and it's it's nice so home kit is it's good it's a little 
pricey, but I've just kind of gone by getting things, you know, incrementally, mm-hmm. and it's not too bad. Yeah, think, thankfully they don't, like, the the models or stuff like that don't change super often, so you can take three years to buy your wall switches, and they yeah. will still be the same same model uh, over time, so that's not too too much of a, a problem. I, I do kind of wish Apple would make, like, all the, the basic HomeKit stuff, uh, that you can kind of built into a wall and forget about. Um, mm-hmm. And then like everyone else can take care of the, the individual appliances. That would have been super neat. Um, but we don't have that. So that's that. That's all. What I, I guess my, my question, I might have brought this up before, uh, is, is it called Thread? Like the new smart home yeah. standard? I'm interested to see how all of my HomeKit devices are going to work with that. Hopefully... It will. I don't know. Why well, I think I think just like the internet and networking protocols never change. Like once they're a thing, I think the HomeKit devices will probably still just continue to work forever, uh, assuming they themselves don't fry. Um, but from like a networking point of view, I don't think like it'll be a while before we get rid of uh, the older Wi-Fi standards, especially as they become cheaper and cheaper to just oh, yeah, kind of keep sure. around as people have older. Uh, stuff or like stuff from this year that still does not support wi-fi n or wi-fi 5 they gave it yeah, versions this, recently right yeah this so. camera actually it was it said get on a 2.4 gigahertz band because it doesn't support 5 gigahertz and i was like oh mm-hmm. i mean not that it matters it streams the video fine over 2.4 but it got me thinking like oh yeah i don't touch my 2.4 band ever yeah but it's there yeah and it's a lot. It's a lot more free nowadays. <laughs> now that everyone's yeah. on five gigahertz, the two point four works all of a sudden very well. Um, yeah, a lot right next to your microwave, um, which is the same same frequency. Which is why the microwave don't put your router under your microwave. It doesn't doesn't work too well in that. Dang it! I need to move mine then. <laughs> was that that's how you're keeping them from uh, spying into your camera that you just connected, right? Yeah, and little dome of tinfoil over it and everything too. You know. So the, it's the tinfoil is in the microwave, which is over the router. But is it yeah. actually tin? No. Okay, it's aluminum. I had a I had a. It chemistry doesn't work teacher. as a. Fel- <laughs> I had a chemistry teacher that was it was so anal about that, and anytime anyone would ever say tinfoil, he would yell aluminum foil. And we're like, okay, dude. Or tin cans. I get like, it. Those are not a thing either. Except Same. in other countries, yeah. then they are a thing, and then and then you feel stupid for thinking everything's aluminum, and you pick up this relatively heavy can, and you're like, "This ain't aluminum." No. Um. So yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Get some so, home kit stuff if you can. It's cool. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to to hear like after a few months how you like your camera because, like, we want to get some for outside, uh, just to kind of monitor because we have a lot of people that walk by in front of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when we're not there, which is super obvious because we're either there or not, um, like both at yeah. once. Uh, and the second reason we want to get cameras just to kind of have in the house to catch the cats being stupid, um, which is always <laughs> like, uh, get your camera, but be quiet because the moment you get up and the, the floorboard creaks, they change position. Um, so having something that would just be always recording is, uh, would be would be great uh, to catch those moments because they are fuzzy little idiots and it's hilarious watching them. Um, 
So yeah, get HomeKit stuff and cats.